Welcome to Common Ground Berlin, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sirhadi Nelson. The United Nations Climate Change Conference is being attended by scores of nations in the Egyptian resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh. And I think it's fair to say that our planet has never needed such a gathering as much as it does now. But will the summit, the 27th annual one this far, actually make a difference? And what must happen there to prevent us crossing climate-wise to the point of no return? Joining me to discuss the summit and climate action are Lutz Weischer, who is head of policy at German Watch, an independent group that lobbies for sustainable global development. Andre Anziger, a senior energy and climate policy analyst with Climate Analytics, which uses science and policy analysis to affect human-made climate change. And we are joined by Fridays for Future spokesman Louis von Rando. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Andre, let's start by evaluating the climate situation currently. Where do things stand and has there been any improvement in mobility or other emissions that we can point to as a success? Yes, uh, indeed. The last few months, uh, last few years have been uh, groundbreaking in terms of impact on climate, uh, climate change, in terms of climate mitigation, in terms of emissions. And uh, it will take a while to understand what's happening, but in terms of the impact of the pandemic, for example, on the mobility, uh, we see that emissions return to the pre-pandemic level in some cases, in some countries. Not well, that's bad, though, isn't it? It is. It is. And especially in Germany, much more can be done uh, and much more should be done in terms of transport emissions reduction. So this is where we need to do a lot, actually in many areas, but this is one of the areas where we've been lagging behind probably most. Lutz, what are your expectations from this summit? I mean, does it make a difference that key leaders like Xi Jinping of the biggest polluter, which is China, isn't coming? It will be a moment of truth, I think, after sort of a very difficult geopolitical year where other issues have been forefront. When um, you say moment of truth, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, uh, countries have made promises, leaders have made promises, have entered into commitments. The Paris Agreement is a legally binding international treaty, um, have made uh, promises at COP26 last year in Glasgow. So this is the annual moment of truth where the world attention is on you asking, you know, what of these promises have you implemented? What's the What's the progress so far? And I think that's crucially important, particularly in times like these. Louis, what do you think? I mean, obviously, these key leaders, again, for me, the fact that the Chinese leader isn't there is worrying when you're talking about climate and the biggest polluter. What are you expecting and your generation for that matter? I think from COP27, we're expecting uh, a moment of accountability, what Lutz kind of talked about already. Um, we have a lot of countries with big promises. They're saying they're saving the climate uh, single-handedly. But in reality, when you look at the facts and the emissions, these countries are doing way too little. So this COP27 is a moment where they all come together, they talk about what they've done, and they're assessed on what they've done. And what we need now and what we are expecting and demanding from this COP27 is that these countries raise their ambitions astronomically because the climate crisis is escalating, but our solutions and our fixes to that are not. Do you think it helps to have this summit on the African continent where the effects of climate change are more felt than maybe in other continents? 
I think for the political landscape itself, it isn't really changing anything because these uh, conferences are held in some buildings and it's basically all, all the same. But I think what plays a factor here is that through this geographical location on the continent of Africa, a lot of the activists from countries of the global south, which are experiencing the um, catastrophic consequences of the climate crisis, they can attend and their um, travel distances are much shorter. And we have this MAPA delegation, MAPA meets most affected people and areas. We have this delegation there and these are the people on the forefront of the fight against the climate crisis and they can attend now and they can make their voices heard. Andre, do you agree? I mean, I've been to Sharm el-Sheikh. I used to cover Egypt for NPR, and it's mainly reachable by air. Egypt is a place where protests are illegal and forcibly suppressed. And so I think we won't see as many activists and NGOs that normally attend these summits uh, being visible this year. What impact does that have on this summit, which is so important, as all of you have been mentioning? Yes, but much more than location, uh, it is important to prepare the summit well, the pre-call preparations, uh, the diplomacy before and after, but it's also essential for countries to do the homework after that. So, you know, climate mitigation doesn't start on the first day of COP and doesn't end on the last day. Uh, there's a homework that uh, members, that countries and that governments failed to do in many cases. They're still failing to do the, the homework. Um, and the COP is just, uh, as you've been mentioning, uh, the moment when, you know, we just double check what's been done. And, uh, you know, the the governments are keep failing, keep failing the global society in terms of climate mitigation. Go yeah, ahead, Lutz. Um, yeah. But, I mean, what you have mentioned, I think, is a real problem. If we look at countries or circumstances where, where we've had more ambitious climate action, it's always been a factor that we've had activists and, and civil society pushing for it. So, of course... For successful COP, it's important also for civil society to be able to play that role. And there are very serious questions that need to be asked of the Egyptian presidency because Egypt is a country where activists are put in jail, where the freedom of speech, of protests is not there. So I think that's something where I, I, the presidency is also feeling a lot of pressure. I think a lot of people are mentioning it, other governments are mentioning it to the presidency, and it's going to be their role of the Egyptian government to allow for peaceful protest, for civil society engagement at the COP, and what's crucially important also beyond. What we don't want to see is two weeks of free expression and protests, and then it goes back to normal. For there to be successful uh, climate change mitigation, there needs to be a climate change or climate activist movement. Well, I think all three of you have sort of pointed to the fact that there are a lot of promises and a lot less delivery. And a recent United Nations report found that just 26 of 193 countries that agreed to step up their climate actions have actually followed through on that pledge. So are these climate summits worth it, considering goals are often talked about and agreed on but rarely met? Go ahead, Andre. So, um, yes, definitely they are very important, very essential, and we are definitely better with those climate summits than without them, because this is one of the very few places where the vulnerable countries, the least developed countries, can look eye to eye with the wealthy countries, those countries which have been driving force behind the climate change itself. So this is why it is essential to have them. But, uh, you know, this is the, the main point, that the work starts at COP, doesn't end at COP. And uh, this is what has not been uh, done by the governments. Lois? I think it's crucially important to have this like international institution which double checks all the things and talks about new solutions and also international ways to um, cooperate in fighting the climate crisis. And I think that the fight against the climate crisis only works on an international level together with all the countries and most importantly the ones that are most affected by it. 
I think the key problem doesn't lie in the COP itself, but in the national governments attending them. And these national governments are still in this mode of operation where they're basically just looking for their own well-being and saying, oh, we are not responsible. The other ones are the bad ones. Look at, for example, China or something like that. And in Germany, there's oftentimes this argument of we are only making 2% of the global emissions and look at the other countries. But they ignore the huge factor of leading and pushing forward and making solutions possible. And that happens at COP. And that's why COP is so important. I think you can also really see it in the scenarios and projections. Before the Paris uh, COP, COP21 in, in 2015, we were expecting global warming of four, maybe six degrees. The projections of what's expected with all of the commitments that countries have made at COPs after Paris were around, you know, three maybe. And now we're seeing them around two and a half degrees. So, I mean, it seems to me very difficult to make the argument that these conferences have had no impact. That's a tremendous impact. The tragedy is that it's not enough. Two and a half degrees of global warming is still catastrophic, will have horrible impacts for large, large parts of the world's population. So it's certainly right to criticize the governments attending the COPs for not delivering enough ambition, but it's also important to recognize that they've made a difference. Now, you can say, well, those projections are, you know, based on the commitments governments have made, who promises that they will implement them. And that's a fair point, of course. Um, but you can also look at scenarios that look at the impact of current policies, and that's stuff that's already in place. Last week, the International Energy Agency released its World Energy Outlook, and for the first time ever, we have a current policy scenario, so business as usual, that projects that fossil fuel demand will peak and eventually decline. The International Energy Agency is not projecting further growth in fossil fuel demand based on current policies. I mean, that's a huge change to a few years ago. And that's because of many factors, technological, economic, the pressure of the climate movement, but of course also of international climate diplomacy. Well, that's, I mean, that pressure is real, but how do you feel about the fact that, well, Vladimir Putin, there's a war going on, so perhaps that's why he's not showing up. But I mean, China, the fact that the Chinese leader isn't going to be there after having his conference back in China that allowed him to basically continue as leader uh, without any end in sight to his leadership. So why not show up? I mean, does this mean that this is going to end up being more show than it is actually real uh, changes to policy? And Lewis, I'll pose it to you first. I don't really think so. I, I think it's very bad that China's leader isn't showing up. China is a huge global player economically and also geopolitically. That's a point that's very bad. But on the other hand, a lot of other countries are showing up, um, world-leading industrial states, just for example, Germany and France and, and other European countries, and also countries of the global south. So there are still energy treaties to be made, international partnerships to be uh, decided upon. Um, so I think there's still very much wiggle room to improve the international climate policies. Yes, indeed. And uh, some leaders that are planning to come, uh, Joe Biden, uh, he will come, I think. There is something to, well, celebrate in terms of uh, the U.S. Uh, passing the Inflation Reduction Act. Obviously, it's not enough to meet uh, U.S. Uh, goal of reducing emissions by 50 to 52 percent. But, uh, you know, it's a step forward. Um, I just would like to reply to what Lutz said as well in terms of IEA and the projection the first time that the emissions uh, from the fossil fuel will peak in the coming years. I'm just wondering if this will not become a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. And if you know that, you know, your business model is going to, you know, phase out in the coming, you know, decade or two, then you will just not invest in this anymore. And then, you know, this will result in uh, less investment in fossil fuels um, and, you know, 
continued high prices, uh, but in the end, you know, we got addicted to cheap oil, to cheap gas, and this is how we ended up in this trouble. So um, this is why this may be a much more important moment than we can see from the current perspective. We're going to talk more about fossil fuels, the International Climate Summit, and actions to combat climate change after a short break. Stay tuned. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. This is Common Ground Berlin, and I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. And I'm the senior producer, Dina El Said. Each week, we bring you a podcast aimed at deepening your understanding of critical issues in Germany and beyond. But to make our podcast even better, it's important for us to hear what you think. You can share that with us by rating the show on your podcast app. You can also write us a review on the platform you use to listen to our episodes. We look forward to your feedback. And join us again next Monday on Common Ground Berlin. Welcome back to Common Ground Berlin with our episode about the 27th International Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson and joining me are Lutz Weischer of German Watch, Andre Anziger of Climate Analytics and Louis von Rando of Fridays for Future. I want to start by talking about world events that are affecting countries' willingness to fulfill climate change goals. And this goes back to your earlier point, I think, also of fossil fuels. For example, the energy crisis exacerbated by the Russian war in Ukraine and skyrocketing inflation. Lutz, how are these events affecting the countries that are the biggest offenders when it comes to climate change? I mean, the, the Russian war against Ukraine and, and the energy crisis that followed has had an impact, of course, on energy policy, particularly in Europe. And it can go both ways. I mean, I think what you're clearly seeing or what's becoming finally clear to everyone is that renewable energy is the best answer. We used to say, you know, energy policy has this triangle of objective and you have to find a balance between sustainability, affordability um, and energy security, security of supply. Now we're seeing that renewable energy on all three dimensions are just the best option. It's not a triangle anymore. It's a point, right? I mean, renewables are just the most affordable, the most secure, and the most environmentally friendly option. So this leads to a huge renewed attention on renewable energy. Having the Polish prime minister say we need to accelerate renewable energy deployment because we need to be independent of Russia. If you've ever followed EU climate policy for five minutes, you know, that that's an unusual statement for a Polish prime minister, right? Well, I mean, especially a country that has so many emissions. I mean, I did a story about Krakow pollution because of all the coal that's burned in that country. Right. So, so we're yeah. seeing that leaders who are not necessarily, you know, traditionally been climate friendly are now calling for an acceleration of the energy transition. So that's great, of course. The problem is the short term responses, which are turning coal-fired power plants back on, but particularly also going to look for additional gas supplies across the world. And it's not clear, and we're getting a lot of questions from our international partners, you know, which way is it? Like, which is the direction that you will take after this crisis? Is it really the accelerated energy transition or is it a return to fossil fuels? And I really hope that, 
European leaders and also the Chancellor uh, Scholz will understand that the COP is really the moment to provide some clarity also to the world who's wondering what's up with your transition. Is it really happening or not? I think there are good reasons for it to happen stronger than ever because of the war. But uh, we're getting very mixed signals from political decision makers. So go ahead, Andre. You wanted to add something. Yes, it, I think the main challenge is the continuity of effort. Actually, you indicated this, Lutz. Um, so, uh, you know, you had uh, German Minister of Finance, Christian Lindner, saying on the 26th or 7th of February, calling renewable energies the energies of freedom and now trying to promote shale gas in Germany. And I will not be surprised if the same happens to the you know Polish prime minister who is now trying to develop um, nuclear energy, which you know will not be there anytime soon. And what will happen until then? Uh, so in this case, the society uh, is much more ahead of the politicians. This is also why fossil fuels should not be cheaper, because we have to tax them so that you know they not tax by other foreign dictators so that the money is flowing there. We should keep fossil fuel expensive, maybe not expensive at the moment. We should support those affected by this the most. Uh, but, you know, we just need to make sure that we cannot get addicted again to the cheap fossil fuels. Uh, go ahead, Louis. You want to add something? Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, from my perspective, we're not really getting mixed signals, but I'm getting a very clear message from especially the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz about what he thinks of renewable energies and also fossil energies. Because in the past years, decades in Germany, um, we fought in like political footwork for renewable energies and for the energy transition um, in the energy sector. But now we're experiencing fossil lock-ins. So the countries of the world, but I'm currently talking about Germany, in the mission to find energy security, they're running back into the open arms of the fossil lobby. And we have these LNG terminals built in Germany. They're building way more than they need, and they are actually ratifying them for 2043. We want to be fossil-free and also emission-free by 2045. So there's a discrepancy going on. And in Nordrhein-Westphalia, a big state in Germany, we're actually having coal power plants run longer than expected and than anticipated until 2024, certain coal power plants, which is actually like a fossil lock-in, which I was just talked about. We have a, a very big election coming up in the U.S., midterm elections that could really change the way the country is moving. And a lot of that, as we heard uh, during a show that we did last week, hinges on the cost of gasoline. That is what voters are looking for. It's like, which candidate is going to provide me with a lower cost gasoline? So <laughs> that mindset of fossil fuel is still very strong in countries that are among the biggest polluters. Do you see that changing or what will it take to get that to change? And I ask anyone who wants to answer that I question. Think, I think that is actually one of the functions also of these climate conferences. I think a COP can help slowly change that because it's a moment also for reporting on the climate crisis, not a coincidence that you're doing your climate podcast this week, right? And the COP on the African continent particularly, the losses and damages from the climate crisis, the impacts that are so severe that you can't even adapt to them in the classical sense of adaptation, but that you have to say, I have to abandon this island, I, I cannot do agriculture on this land anymore, etc., are so severe and are becoming increasingly severe, and they're getting more sort of spotlight and reporting, of course, also thanks to the COP. Hopefully we don't stop there. I think this issue of loss and damage is going to be one of the crucial and most difficult issues at this COP. But I really hope that sort of reporting and sort of opening a perspective on the impacts the climate crisis already has worldwide um, also helps broaden voters' perspectives in a way. Andre, you want to add something? 
Yes, another driver of the change is also the fact that uh, renewables, that heat pumps, that efficiency are small scale. And they, you know, some people who didn't really worry too much about climate change, um, they are worrying about the energy bills. And, you know, in Poland, for example, most of the coal used for heating was coming from Russia. Now this coal is not coming anymore, luckily. Uh, but people realize that we are very dependent on imports as well, uh, imports from of coal from other countries. So many of them are going into efficiency, are going to heat pumps, are going into putting solar panels on the roofs. So there is quite a big transformative change at the local level because it's, you know, renewables, the beauty of renewables is the scalability. You just get can get them as much as you want. And for the U.S. elections, you know, the states that will benefit the most uh, from the climate uh, action are the states which are currently mostly governed by Republicans. And so maybe that will have an impact on the dynamics in the country. Louis, what is Germany doing right and what is it doing wrong when it comes to mitigating climate change? For example, this summer, obviously, we all heard, if not took advantage of the nine euro transit ticket per month where you could go all over Germany on regional trains. I mean, is this the right direction or is Germany still in need of being able to figure out how to do climate change protection better? Germany is definitely in need to figure out how to do climate uh, protection better. I think Germany is kind of experiencing an ambivalence. On the one hand, they're doing good things. You mentioned the 9-year transit ticket. Now we have a uh, 29-year transit ticket. Which in is, Berlin. Yeah, in Berlin, um, which is too expensive, but it's still a, a relatively cheap transit ticket. We just had the barriers for renewable energies lowered um, drastically, and Germany is kind of a world leader state when it comes to climate protection. But on the other hand, although Germany is leading in that field, they're still doing way too little. Um, we still have these LNG terminals, um, we still have coal power plants, and we just had this 200 billion euros doppelwumps, as Olaf Scholz called it, uh, which is effectively just subsidies for gas um, companies. So it's Germany is doing a lot of things right, but also a lot of things wrong. And I think it's incredibly important that although Germany is making a good image for itself, we still criticize the things they're doing wrong. So Lutz, Andre, do you want to respond to what Louis's point was about German action or inaction? Yes. <laughs> Lutz, go ahead. So Germany is not doing enough to meet its own climate targets. And these are targets that are enshrined in law. So the German government is currently breaking the law. Um, and that's mainly because of emissions in the transport sector. Our climate law says if you miss your annual target, you have to present a program of measures that you will take to close that gap. And the transport minister so far is just refusing to put forward any credible list of measures. I mean, the, we have an expert council that then has to evaluate these measures. They refused to do a full evaluation because they said this is such a ridiculously short list that is not even trying to close the gap that we don't really know where to start. So, I mean, I think particularly in the transport sector, Germany is not doing enough. But it also concerns other sectors, of course. Uh, with the energy crisis, what I would really like to see is that we are really asking ourselves the question, okay, what can we do in addition to what's already planned to accelerate renewable energy, to improve energy efficiency, to increase the deployment of heat pumps? Because what we're doing is implementing some very ambitious targets that were agreed in the coalition treaty before the war started. So, I mean, we're doing, we're sort of implementing the things the Greens got into the coalition uh, treaty, but to say this is a crisis moment and we're willing to rethink about nuclear power. Now we're beginning a discussion about fracking 
um, we've restarted coal plants, like on all other areas of renewable energy, we're saying, okay, crisis, what can we do in addition to business as usual? And for renewables, we're only implementing the targets we set in the winter of 2021. And that's just not enough. If I may add, uh, there's, Go ahead, also, Andre. there's also the, um, you know, the change of the Renewable Energy Act from July this year, which is a major step in the right direction, especially in terms of solar energy, um, uh, solar PV on the roofs. And uh, there was also the reduction of tax uh, VAT for small installations of, um, of solar PV. So, you know, the current government, at least, you know, one ministry is trying to make up for, uh, you know, 16 years of... Uh, well, suboptimal climate policy, but uh, I, I feel like we would lose in terms of the transport ministry. And there's not much climate action happening in that ministry, actually. So, which is which is just surprising, um, because uh, it's also if led by a person which is coming from party calling itself that it's then saying for freedom. But you know, if we uh, buy more Russian oil, that's not really so freedom-oriented approach, I would say. Finance has long been an issue at climate talks. For example, richer countries committed to giving $100 billion a year by 2020 to poor developing countries to help them reduce emissions and prepare for climate change. That deadline was moved from 2020 to 2023. But with skyrocketing inflation, are you expecting it's going to be pushed back even further? And what are the consequences of that delay? And we'll start with Lutz. The consequences of the delay, of course, are really not good for the negotiations. It's a credibility test, and you're asking countries to deliver their promises on climate action. Then you also have to deliver your promises on climate finance, on climate support. Uh, The deal we've made in the international climate agreements in Paris is poor countries who have not contributed as much to the problem as rich countries will start developing in a greener and more climate-friendly way directly because they will get some support from the richer countries who have profited from 100 or 150 years of using fossil fuels. That is the fundamental deal at the core of the Paris Agreement and it's being broken if the promise is not met in 2020 or 2021 or 2022. So I think it makes the negotiations much more challenging. Go ahead, Andre. You want to add something? Uh, yes, just wanted to add that this is also a big risk to you know transformation in those countries because the interest rates in those countries are much higher. The beauty of renewables is that they are much cheaper. Efficiency measures are much cheaper in the long term as well, but they require high upfront investment. To cover this high upfront investment, you have to have some funding. Borrowing money in the least developed countries, developing countries, is just much more expensive than in developed countries. So therefore... Keeping this this target or meeting this target is one point, but we have to keep in mind that this target is, what is it, 13 years old when it was yeah. adopted in, in Copenhagen and after that. Uh, so, you know, now that we're talking about trillions uh, flowing into subsidies into fossil fuels, this target needs to be significantly increased in the coming years. Well, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Lutz. Um, just to underline that point, I mean, we really have to remember this is from 2009. It was made by a U.S. foreign minister whose name was Hillary Clinton. This target is really from a completely different era, um, and so much has happened since then. Climate science have gotten better, and we've all come as a global community to the understanding that we should really try to limit global warming at 1.5 degrees. In Copenhagen, we're mainly talking about 2 degrees. Uh, Yet we've lost time because we've not been ambitious enough in the 13 years since. So we have to meet a more ambitious target in shorter time, on the climate mitigation side and then on the adaptation side, climate impacts are just getting uh, much more severe. So the cost of adapting to them also increases and you have inflation, as you rightly mentioned. So all of that taken together means that we really need to start talking about what comes after the 100 billion because the 100 billion are not going to be enough. 
Go ahead, Louis. I just wanted to say we heard a lot about emissions and the climate crisis and how these countries can transform their energy sectors, which is incredibly important. But what I also want to highlight is fairness. As Lutz mentioned, we've profited off of fossil fuels and industries um, in the past 150 years. We emit the most greenhouse gases, but we're actually not really experiencing these catastrophes in the way the global south is experiencing them. I mean, we had this summer of droughts. Uh, Portugal experienced the worst droughts in 500 years, but it's still relatively moderate compared to Pakistan, where one third of the country was flooded, or Somalia, which is experiencing a nationwide drought, and hunger. Yeah, I just feel like, or it is like that, that the global north has to pay not only for mitigation, but also for adaptation. So these countries don't experiencing the climate catastrophes in the way they're doing right now. It's a thing of justness. Louis, you recently spoke with broadcaster RBB, uh, the German broadcaster, about the actions of Letzte Generation and these sort of very dramatic things that are happening to try and force this along. Do they help the climate debate? Do they actually help actions to happen or do they detract from it? For me, it's very, very distressing when I see mashed potatoes thrown at a Monet that I just saw, you know, a few months back. So is this something that actually makes a difference in your opinion? And then I'll ask the other two as well. Well, in the German climate movement, there's kind of a pluralism going on, and it's a pluralism of actions, of action levels. Uh, we as Fighters for Future, for whom I, I'm speaking right now, we focus on winning people for the cause of climate action. Well, I think the contribution of groups like Letzte Generation or Stop Oil or whatever you want to talk about is that they're shifting the focus onto climate change and they're making headlines and that's why we're talking about them right now. They're, they're all over the news, international news and in times where inflation and the energy crisis are taking attention away from climate change uh, or the climate crisis which is a, a very impending and deadly crisis to the planet Earth, they are regaining that attention and although I think that some people may be deterred through this action from the climate cause, and that's why I think um, it's so important that we have multiple forms of actions and multiple organizations and movements uh, which tend to one side or another so people can integrate in this cause in any organization they want. Lutz, Andre, do you agree? I mean, is this uh, bringing attention to the cause that's been lost or is it distracting? I mean, for German Watch as an organization, I mean, we follow the international negotiations. We do analysis of European and domestic and international climate policy. We publish reports. So it's certainly not our form of action. It's not also something that I would personally uh, do. To me, sort of the relationship with the issue is not so clear. And I mean, if I would choose sort of a a very uh, strong sign of protest, I would probably protest in front of a large fossil fuel company or I would do what some activists have also done, like glue myself to an over-motorized SUV in a showroom, like where the connection to the crisis is clearer. That being said, we've had a week where like five major climate reports by the UN, by the International Energy Agency have come out and what got the most climate reporting in that week was mashed potatoes. So... <laughs> It is drawing attention to the climate crisis in a way that unfortunately work by organizations like ours, but also by the UN and think tanks and academics is still not. So you can see why young people are so frustrated with this situation and the lacking attention of a broader public that they're choosing these, these actions. Andre? I mean, first of all, regarding the impact of uh, last generation uh, actions, 
it remains to be seen whether they will be, you know, have a positive impact on increased awareness or they will create a backlash against uh, certain aspects of climate movement. But uh, at the same time, I'm surprised that, you know, uh, throwing uh, a soup at the, at the Monet picture is gaining more attention than destroying churches for the sake of more lignite or more coal or islands that are sinking. So uh, my main role is to uh, make sure that people are empowered to instigate action if they want to. So, you know, maybe someone will think twice, do I have to really fly to this place for this one week and over this one week? We're going to give Lewis the last word. Go ahead. Yeah, I think the fuel for these people to do these actions is mainly frustration. And maybe the German government needs to think about what they are doing to amplify these protests. And that's not enough climate action. That's why these people are doing these things. And I just want to say it's not Fridays for Future doing this. It's not me doing this. But I can understand where they're coming from. And I just want to add, a lot of people currently are outraged by this. And they're saying, how can they do this? Um, they, they do not have the right for that. But I just want to remind these people that in the end of 2018, the start of 2019, Fridays for Future came from a place where we did school strikes. We went out of school. We basically broke German law. And now we're a quite accepted movement and we're a player in the German political landscape. And I'm sitting here in a quite moderate podcast and I'm not an extremist. And as Andre said, it remains to be seen how this movement will be evaluated in the years to come because maybe they also will be a huge political player. The future will tell for sure. Um, let me ask all of you three one final question. And we've talked about it a little bit, but I want to get into it a little bit more. Do you think that countries will take more aggressive action as the climate situation worsens? Or are we like frogs in boiling water where governments and the public get so used to the extreme weather and climate related effects that they just sort of toss their hands up instead of doing something about it? And I don't know which one of you gentlemen would like to take it first. Maybe this time. Okay, uh, Andre, go ahead. So, uh, I just very much hope that we are smarter than frogs and uh, <laughs> that uh, we will take action because of climate change, but also because it's just a smart way to do, to move forward, keeping in mind uh, our dependency on fossil fuel imports, keeping in mind the trillions we send to big energy companies, big oil uh, companies and to authoritarian governments, which undermine our values, actually. So, uh, you know, that you really have to have very, very good excuses to invest in fossil fuels and uh, they can be debanked. Uh, so uh, it, I think it's just a kind of, it should be standard uh, and we just massively have to accelerate to move away from fossil fuels. And that's something that uh, Paris Agreement is helping us to do. Lewis? I have to agree. I think we're smarter than frogs. And the thing is that the climate policies, which, which help protect the climate, they are actually increasing, like they are rising. But the problem is, at the same time, that the climate crisis is accelerating and escalating way faster in an exponential manner than our policies are doing. And we have these points of no return at 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, where the ecosystem's just experiencing a downfall. And we have to prevent that now. So I think we are doing something, but we're doing way too little, and we have to drastically increase our policy making. Lutz? I remain optimistic about the fate of the Paris Agreement. I think COPs like these actually show that it works. We knew in Paris that the national commitments by the individual member states were not enough to meet the global agreement, and therefore we have to come back each year and discuss and look each other into the eye and say who could do more, who's not doing enough, and hopefully that mechanism over time will lead to a ratcheting up of ambition by which we can still meet the Paris goals. But time is running out, and so far governments have not been ambitious enough, courageous enough. 
But I really hope that this COP can also be a, a reminder that you know everyone signed up to this agreement and we really have to stick to it. I don't think that us just sort of getting used to accelerating and worsening climate impacts is an option. If you look at any scientific study that has looked at what a world with three degrees of warming or more would look like, um, it's so clear that that would be a catastrophic world where it would be very difficult to live in. And um, as our constitutional court in Germany has said, there's a constitutional obligation to do climate protection now, because if you don't, you will restrict the future of future generations. If we don't act now, we will be in a situation where it gets so worse that the government will be forced to take drastic measures. And then we're talking about restricting people's choice of their means of transportation, rationing energy and so on, which is something we all want to avoid. So I think it's clear that if we don't act now, eventually we will be forced to act. But then it would be really hard to manage that action. And it would be sort of a very abrupt transition that would be difficult. Um, so I really hope we're smarter than frogs and acting now. <laughs> so, but it was interesting you brought up, I just wanted to bring up one other point or one follow-up to your bringing up the constitutional court ruling. Is there a response from the current government? I haven't seen anything that indicates that they're going to come up with a plan for the younger generation as the court demanded. Well, the, the outgoing government it still changed the climate law right after the court ruling as a reaction and tightened Germany's climate targets. But, but not, all, also, not as far along as it was supposed to, though. I thought it was supposed to go. The, 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 the court really asked for a, a detailed plan for the short to medium term. And what the outgoing uh, grand coalition did was uh, strengthen the long term target, because that's always the easiest thing for politicians, of course, because bringing it down from 2045 to 2050, you're not going to be in office either in 2050 or 2045. So what is also an obligation is to come up with a climate action plan that really spells out how you will reach those targets. And as discussed, uh, there is a draft for that plan now uh, in cabinet, but it has a big gap. It's lacking sufficient measures in the transport sector because the transport ministry is refusing to do the work it's legally mandated to do. So we will see what the courts will have to say about that. But I'm afraid that that will not be very um, positive for the government. Well, that's our show for today. My guests are Lutz Weischel, who is the head of policy at German Watch, an independent group that lobbies for sustainable global development. Andre Anziger, a senior energy and climate policy analyst with Climate Analytics, which brings science and policy analysis to bear on human-made climate change. And Fridays for Future spokesman Louis von Rando. Thanks to all three of you for being on Common Ground Berlin. Thank you Thank for having you. us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed. Our social media editor is Stefano Montali. And I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Common Ground Berlin is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. If you are on Apple, we'd love for you to write a review on Common Ground Berlin. You can also subscribe to and rate our podcast on Spotify. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com. 